You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Welcome back, everyone, to the Poetry of Impact podcast. In today's episode, I'll be chatting with fellow Nexus member, Sam Teicher. Sam is co-founder and chief reef officer at Coral Vita, a social enterprise that grows resilient corals in months rather than in decades to restore dying and damaged reefs in the Bahamas. In this episode, Sam describes the ecological and socioeconomic tragedy of dying coral reefs. He talks about his experience of building a personal relationship with coral in the ocean and how this relationship is an emotional dichotomy of euphoria and bliss mixed with heartbreak and fury. Sam believes that if you make a difference in the world, then why not take the action to take care of the things that ultimately take care of us? Sam shares wisdom well beyond his years. So drop in and enjoy this episode with Sam Teicher. Welcome, Sam. It's great to have you here today. Great to be here, Gino. Thanks for having me on. And where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Freeport, Grand Bahama. Now, where is that for us who don't know exactly where that is? (laughs) So the Bahamas, island nation, right off the coast of the United States near Florida. Grand Bahama is one of the northernmost islands in this country that has over 700. And we are about a 30-minute flight from Miami, so not too far away from the U.S. And how long have you been down there? I've been here for four and a half years. Okay. Now, of course, you went down there and are doing some amazing work. And by far, no one's even come close to doing the type of work. Out of all the interviewees I've done, Coral Reef Restoration, I must say, is probably like a Three Sigma event in the impact world, right? I mean, it's out on the bell curve. I mean, you have the traditional sort of secular categories in impact space, uh, race, gender, climate, and I mean, you can name the top 12 to 15. But coral reef restoration is like a subgroup of a subgroup of a subgroup. But obviously, there's nothing sub for you. I mean, this is your primary endeavor. So how did you get to a point where he says like, wow, you know, it's my calling to actually put together the parts in order to focus on coral restoration? Yeah, I would say it's fair that a lot of folks don't grow up dreaming they're going to become a coral farmer. And that was... (laughs) Coral farmer. I like that term. Yeah, that's my unofficial role here, though we've got an incredible team at Coral Vita and there's amazing coral reef restoration practitioners all around the world that have pioneered this space. But growing up in Washington, D.C., not what springs to mind when you think about tropical coral reef ecosystems. But to sort of set the stage for how I got into this space and in the world of impact and coral reef restoration, my parents raised my brother and I on this belief that we, you know, we can do good things and make a difference in the world if we set our minds to it. So always have been drawn toward trying to fix problems. I went to DC public schools, so was interested in education reform. My dad had worked in international security and diplomacy, and I was interested in peacemaking. I was basically being pulled in about 18 different directions, but always also had a, a deep connection with nature and became scuba diving certified as soon as I was old enough when I was 13 years old, my brother and I both. And so fast forward, get to college, thinking about all the different things I want to do, can't really nail it down, end up studying climate change because I see it impacting all people everywhere and, and many of these things that I care about get into graduate school for environmental work and take a gap year before starting my master's program. And I went out to the island nation of Mauritius. So 
east of Madagascar, island nation. It's like the Madagascar of Madagascar. It's where the dodo bird is from. That's one of its many claims to fame. And I worked for my buddy Vedant's NGO called Eli Africa. He's a Mauritian guy. He had set this up to do educational work for at-risk kids, but he wanted an environmental branch. And out of several projects I got going, I helped launch a United Nations-funded coral restoration project in partnership with the, the Mauritius Oceanography Institute. And got to see, working with local communities and scientists, how these reefs can, in the right conditions, be brought back to life. A lot of positives, but then also how the traditional model for coral farming, which I'll get into more later, has a number of key limitations from scaling, from funding, impact, and got back to grad school with a lot of those thoughts in mind where I met my friend and now co-founder Gator Halpern. And we were thinking about big environmental challenges that matter to us and that matter and sort of coalescing around the shared love for the ocean and a recognition that unfortunately policymakers and scientists and NGOs alone aren't doing enough when it comes to ensuring coral reefs around for future generations. We thought, what if we create a mission-driven company to scale coral reef restoration? And that is how Coral Vita is born. And that is how I became a coral farmer. So I was raised by a dairy farmer and our day-to-day was putting on boots and bucking hay and filling in the grain buckets and milking cows and doing whatever and fixing fences. So that was the day-to-day of a dairy farmer and uh, being a kid on a dairy farm. What is a day-to-day of a coral farmer look like? Well, I will now speak on behalf of more of my team because they're doing okay. most of the work here. I, I still obviously get to throw on the, the scuba suit as much as possible, but running the company, I have to wear the, the business suit more often than I'd like. So you walk into the coral farm which is based on land for our facility. And there's a range of different capabilities that that gives us the traditional sort of underwater out in the ocean gardens where corals are grown. But starts off with folks really looking after the corals in these tanks. So we're growing corals under sunlight with clean water pumping through these tanks. And the corals are looked after by the coral farmers. So corals are animals that have plants living inside of them that make rock for their skeleton. It's a pretty fun, funky three for one. But as we grow these corals from these tiny little pieces, we're growing them on these concrete or ceramic plugs that are in the tanks. And they, as with anything really in water and sunlight, will have other forms of algae start growing on them, which impede the growth of the corals, which we're trying to make bigger and stronger before putting them in the ocean. And so our team spends a good amount of time with the high-tech tool of a toothbrush, scrubbing algae off of the plugs around the coral so that they can grow. So that's sort of on a, you know, several times a week, we have cleaning regimes. And then from there, the teams, depending on the days of the week and the projects, will be doing everything from surveying the reefs to determine, are they optimal for restoration? Where should we plant these corals? To then when it's the most exciting time, actually going down oftentimes with underwater drills and marine epoxy or cement, where we then plug these corals into the reefs, just like you can almost plant trees and the glue or cement dries and the corals attach and they start reforming a reef. And that is really what it's all about. And definitely the most exciting part of being a coral farmer. And why should we care about that for people who aren't paying attention? First of all, it's underwater, so it's very difficult for us to see. I mean... Out of state, out of mind often. Yeah, kind of out of state, out of mind. And it's really interesting. I just did my first surf lesson in Santa Cruz a couple of weeks ago and being out on the ocean and just realizing it's like, yeah, there's the surface and you're looking at this big, beautiful body 
of earthly liquid phenomena. And yet underneath is so much life. But when you're on shore, you know, the thing that you feel, especially if you're not close to the ocean, is that all you know is kind of land. So why is it important for us as earthly beings, earthly land-based beings? Yes, may we may have come out of the ocean. I'm, I mean, there is some parts of evolution that suggest we did to some extent, but we've definitely forgotten about that part, about our original somatic experience in the ocean, perhaps. And I just want to, just at a high level, just touch on why it matters. Sure. Yeah, you touch on a really lot of key points because much of our work is physically restoring the reefs, but it also is the education to get people aware about why reefs matter to all of us. And without being hyperbolic, I mean, life as we know it in many ways is tied to the health of this one single ecosystem. So when you think about coral reefs, they're beautiful, they're magical, they're weird. For me, it's like one of the closest things to experiencing an alien planet in terms of the creatures and the shapes and the dazzling colors. But it's in some cases just 50 yards offshore, just a a few feet underwater. In addition to being wondrous, though, they are incredibly important. So to start off with, this is one ecosystem that takes up less than 1% of the seafloor that sustains an estimated 25% of all marine life and sustains the livelihoods of up to 1 billion people in over 100 countries and territories by sheltering coastlines from storms, by powering tourism economies, by underpinning fisheries, and even in some cases through cultural heritage or even providing medicinal compounds that are used to fight everything from arthritis to viral infections to cancer. The latest estimates also are that they generate $2.7 trillion annually in goods and services. So you think about the hotels and resorts that are relying on snorkel and scuba tourists and the people that pay money to visit those places. That doesn't just directly impact the hoteliers, but the taxi drivers, the restaurateurs, the other small businesses on those islands or coastal nations. A healthy coral reef produces wave energy on average by 97%. So together with mangrove forests, they're one of the best coastal defenses that exist that actually, in in cases that I've seen, having lived through Hurricane Dorian, which is the strongest storm ever hit the Bahamas, they've actually saved people's lives and they protect property and infrastructure. And then you've got people, whether to feed their families or pay the bills or more on an industrial scale, you know, fishery sectors that are really dependent on them. The challenge, though, is that half the world's coral reefs are already dead. And we are on track to lose over 90% by 2050 if we exceed the 1.5 degrees warming, which we are at this point currently on track to do so. So this is an ecological tragedy, and it is also very much a socioeconomic catastrophe. I think you're close enough to the experience to answer this question. So most of the reasons why it matters that you just shared are very secular sort of Western rationalization reasons. And I mean, that's good for the world that you and I exist in, in terms of raising capital to fund projects, and that's what they look for. But Sam, I suspect that you have something special in terms of your your ability to channel the experience of why it matters when you're down there in the water on a daily basis, and you've had this relationship over years, there's something existential going on as just like, imagine yourself in an avatar kind of context where you're touching your extreme sentient sense-making and realizing that, you know, I always love the passage, and I think it's Meister Eckhart, a Christian mystic, who said that what's here is really interesting, but the fact that there's anything here at all is what really is interesting. 
And for me, that's the leap to inspiriting the moment of life. And so I'm curious about those moments where you've come face to face with these ecosystems where you realize like, this is the real why. Because like, holy shit, when I'm down here in relationship, I feel like this is lovemaking at its best in like spiritual lovemaking to some extent. And that's a loose, broad experience. But what I'm getting at is, is that there's got to be moments when you're with coral reefs where time and space gets suspended and you kind of just forget that you're Sam and you're the GP and you're all, you know, all, all the identities of Sam all kind of just like melt away and just kind of take us to what that moment's like. Yeah, I appreciate that line of questioning. Well, I would say two things spring to mind. One is just euphoria and pure bliss. And the other is also heartbreak. And in some cases, fury. I'll start with the latter because I, I want to end on a positive given how you know cool that question is. <laughs> but you know, I've seen just in the four and a half years I've been living here in the Bahamas, I've seen corals that I've come to know die and disappear, lose their brilliant colors and the life and go gray and white and covered in algae and slime. It's almost like if you saw like a majestic forest turning into this sort of prairie dust bowl with tumbleweeds. It's just like, it's in many ways unrecognizable. It's, it loses all of the, the color and the life and the wonder. So that is tough to see in many cases. But the reason I'm also motivated to do this work and to really just have this connection with nature is because it's also just how incredible healthy coral reefs are. I mean, last week, there's a place here in Grand Bahama called Thrift Harbor. It's a really long island, Grand Bahama. It's almost the width of the Florida Peninsula. And then off the east end, there's a series of these tiny little islands, these keys, and they have these sort of saltwater cuts running through them. It's almost like a saltwater river, and it changes daily with the tides. And there's this one spot where it actually has some of the healthiest coral reefs I've ever seen in the Caribbean in this little cut. And you drop in, and depending which way the tides are going, you, you just float and it's almost like this river with a snorkel mask on and you're just flying over again i said it before like just this alien life and it's not just the corals themselves but the sea stars and the eagle rays and the massive schools of fish and then you peel off of that and suddenly you're surrounded by mangrove forest in the shallows and these blue holes these underwater caves that just take you to even further extraterrestrial worlds and so there's been many times particularly when there's not current like that where if the work dive is done and it's a place that I've come to time and time again, you can just almost meditate in front of a coral. And then you start seeing all these tiny little things that usually the big people that we are fly past and miss. And just having that connection is really, truly special. And then to bring it back to one of the other things you talked about, again, taking it out of that sort of the Western standpoint, there's so many peoples and cultures around the world that also have deep cultural roots that are tied in coral reefs. And I could list many of them. But the one that always really resonates with me is that in the Hawaiian people's origin story, all life comes from the coral polyp. So the coral polyp is sort of the mouth of the coral. Hundreds, if not thousands, not tens of thousands of polyps come together to form one piece of coral as we sort of think about it. So people, tigers, birds, trees, dolphins, everything for Hawaiians in the origin story comes from the coral. So it really is something that I think a lot of people for many thousands of years have had this spiritual, deep, aesthetic connection with and this recognition that not only is this incredible and beautiful, but it's so important. 
So how do you hold on to, maybe hold on to is the wrong verb, but how do you dance with the dialectic of despair and hope in an existential sense that you just shared? And then also putting on Sam, you know, the managing partner, the GP of a fund that's trying to organize capital to put these profit to finance these projects. And there's just a shitload of intersections going on here and lots of possibilities for traffic jams from getting the messaging right to getting the timing right to your soul making sure that it's doing what it wants to do in the world. And you have an honest conversations with yourself and it's like, is this what I want to do? Am I doing it the right way? Yes, I want to do, but am I doing it the right way? Take me down that journey a little bit about the inevitable happenings of what it takes to not just have a passion for something, but to actually turn it into a project and materialize it. A route that I would sort of follow to get to, I guess, my approach and my, my belief and whatnot it goes back in many ways to my dad. Both my parents, again, they really played and play a huge role in my life and sort of how I think and consider things and, and want to try and make things better. But in particular with my dad, he was a diplomat. He was on the National Security Council working on the Middle East. Marrakesh to Bangladesh was his domain back in the sort of the 70s and 80s. And I often refer to myself as an optimistic realist where things are the way they are. People can be how they are. And here are all the challenges and here are the things I wish could be, but tough shit. Like that's just, I, you know, I'm not going to just only rely on idealism. But from there also believing, okay, this is how things are, but we can make things better. We can fix things. We can improve things. And if you're trying to make peace in the Middle East, I can't think of a clear example of believing you can make things better, but also very much having to deal with the way things are. And when it comes to seeing dying coral reefs and ecosystem collapse and the climate crisis and communities getting displaced because of increasing storms and sea level rise and droughts and, and all these different catastrophes that are really of our own making in many ways. Here's the problem. I know what needs to change. I'm not going to be the one that flips the switch and makes climate destabilization stop, but I can make a difference from what we know in terms of science and technology and people and entrepreneurship to maybe come up with a solution to make things better. And we've seen over decades, the field of restoration show that reefs can be brought back to life in the right conditions. So can we just do it better? Can we do it bigger? Can we do it more collaboratively? So that drives, I think, a lot of how I can stay positive in spite of the fact that we're facing such a really shitty, tough, heartbreaking reality. Those things all sort of, yeah, tie in towards that sort of structure. And then when it comes to, okay, let me throw it on like I'm talking to... An investor is like, look, okay, you cannot care at all about all the wonder and all of the love and the sort of social or environmental value. But hotels and resorts, their bottom lines are going to suffer tremendously if reefs die. Insurance companies and coastal property owners, they got a lot of dollar figures on the line if reefs and mangrove forests disappear because the property damages are going to be worse. And you just keep falling from a pure black and white dollar and cents perspective this is a huge economic imperative. And so that's why you're seeing actually reinsurance companies and the US Defense Department look at innovations for either for financing or physically doing the work when it comes to coral and even oyster reef restoration. Because while they might not be progressive environmentalists, they get risks, they get realities. And they see that if reefs are healthier, 
then bases or properties will be better protected and lives may be saved. So there's a huge economic imperative for us to solve this challenge as well. And that's why working together with scientists around the world, incorporating their methods, developing our own to improve the efficacy, the diversity, the resiliency of our model and the cores we're growing, we're then also putting a business model on top of reef restoration, trying to transition away from the traditional grant and donation funding space, which is how it's operated for decades and kept it unfortunately fairly small scale and create a financially sustainable model tied to those values that can finance, we believe, ecosystem scale impact and restoration. And where are you at on that journey in terms of financial modeling it so that you can integrate private capital at scalable levels versus you know the NGO nonprofit model? So thus far, we've raised two investment rounds. We raised a pre-seed and a seed round. And next year, uh, in 2023, we'll be raising a Series A. The way that we're looking at it, I'll sort of keep it on the high-level revenue pillars. But we, we've got four core pillars to that business model. Selling restoration as a service, ecotourism, conservation finance, and coral sponsorship. So working backwards, if you went on our website right now, as a just individual person, whether because you believe in what we're doing, it's a birthday, it's a holiday, you can adopt a coral. You can sort of basically pay for the growth and outplanting of a coral, and then you get a digital certificate. We also use it as an education and storytelling tool. And through that, then also taking it from the individual level, can do that with businesses and companies and corporations. So we actually are restoring a Corona beer reef here in Grand Bahama. And today, a uh, partnership was announced with Carriuma, the shoe company who's partnered with the new Avatar movie through Disney. And they're releasing these sort of ocean themed shoes where a portion of those sales are going to actually sort of adopt corals. Conservation finance, looking at either existing or emerging mechanisms that really can fund work like ours. So many people have heard of carbon credits to help encourage people to drive down emissions or offset them. There now are emerging biodiversity credits. So for people that are looking to be nature positive in addition to carbon negative. Debt for nature swaps, foreign debt in Seychelles and Belize have been forgiven in some cases for that money being spent on environmental conservation or sustainability projects. Blue bonds, reef insurance policies. And we've received sort of selection awards from something called the Global Fund for Coral Reefs, as well as a forthcoming Inter-American Development Bank project that's trying to encourage coral reef restoration tourism in the Bahamas. So looking at all these bigger mechanisms, as we then use the farm itself as a coral production facility, growing these more diverse and resilient corals. At the same time, it's also a revenue generating tourism attraction. So you come down to Grand Bahama or wherever we have farms in the future, you can pay to visit farms like it's an aquarium, you can eventually even pay to maybe even go out and plant corals and get reef restoration dive certification. And then also the farm simultaneously acts as a education center for local communities, which is a core part of our model, building capacity, workforce development, students, fishermen, but the people who rely on these reefs the most use it as a hands-on learning center. And then finally, selling restoration as a service. So RAS instead of SAS and looking at the hotels, developers, insurers, governments, Everyone who depends on the tourism, coastal protection, and fisheries benefits of reefs can hire Coral Vita to restore the reefs they depend on. So thus far, signed restoration contracts with Bahamian government, the Grand Bahama Port Authority, and are sort of building out that pipeline for not only customers, but where farms can be in the future and how we can really make this impact that we want to and need to see. And when it comes to kind of the alpha of those four, I mean, where like is probably the biggest focus or, you know, or the primary focuses in terms of really driving the financial aspect of those four? 
you know, in terms of like you have a limited amount of team, you can only do so much when like you're just getting going and there's a certain amount of focus. Just curious on, well, like that in theory are the four silos, like how's it actually playing out in your mind in terms of where you imagine the emphasis being over time on a weighted basis? Depends on what day of the week you ask me. <laughs> uh, yeah. And not to mention that again, we, we launched our farm here in Grand Bahama in May 2019. And then in September 2019, had Hurricane Dorian hit, which was the strongest storm in recorded history to hit this country, put 80% of our island underwater. We had a 17-foot wall of water at the farm, did humanitarian work for the next few months in our local communities, and then finally got the farm reopened in March 2020, just in time for COVID. I say that all because I would say we haven't had all the opportunities we would have liked to have tested core parts of the business model, <laughs> in addition to obviously losing yeah. time on, on growing the corals and restoring reefs. But the one I'm most excited about would be restoration as a service, right? Can we get stakeholders that have direct beneficiary ties to ecosystems to think about them in a way that they typically don't, where it's not, oh, that's a problem for the commons and NGOs or government grants or the UN or whoever will fix that. But they're like, oh, this is actually, not only does this matter, financially, but I actually now I'm going to believe in taking care of it, hopefully as good stewards, but if nothing else, because there's a direct bottom line interest in that. So I think that restoration as a service model is intriguing and exciting. But again, the conservation finance industry and, and space, I think, offers a huge room of potential, particularly for innovations by major, major financers that are trying to see impact. So yeah, you take those things together that's definitely where a lot of the attention is going. But, you know, like I said, we got tours coming in every week. We're, we're building out the adoptive coral campaigns. So it's sort of never ending. Sure. And I mean, you never know who or what's going to come along to usher you in whatever direction. Yeah, exactly. So I love this idea of the carbon neutral versus nature positive. Can you flesh that out a little bit? Because I think we've been kind of over-socialized and being carbon neutral. And um, you're suggesting that like, if we're going to do this work, why not be nature positive? And and would love to know how that's playing out for you, but why it's actually important to think in those terms. How much time do you have? I <laughs> <laughs> no, just, yeah, I'm, the, I mean, the, a very elementary understanding will be fine because frankly, I'm in the space. I mean, I do a fair amount of climate work and nature positive is rarely heard. It's just all like right now it's net zero, right? In terms of the climate discourse. So the ideology of the climate engagement is all around neutrality. And you're saying, whoa. And you're just saying like, pump the brakes on that discourse, right? And there's actually an opportunity cost actually thinking in neutrality. And the opportunity cost is that we can actually have a nature positive moment. I would say not so much opportunity cost and pump the brakes, but it's sort of it's more of a yes and rather than either or, right? And a good way to frame this is I will be the first one to say who's my job is coral reef restoration. The best thing to do for coral reefs is not to hire us. It's not to restore reefs. We got to stop killing them. We have to solve for climate destabilization. We have to solve for habitat destruction, overfishing, pollution, all these things. However, if we imagine tomorrow we're at zero degrees warming, the ocean itself is going to keep warming for decades to come, which is one of the things that kills corals, warming oceans. And so we need adaptation solutions. We need to scale restoration. So here's the thing where a lot of people are looking only at how can we monetize either for their own 
sake, which is, you know, a whole thing, but at, at the very least so that there's funding mechanisms to support reforestation and all these carbon sequestration projects, we should also be doing the same thing for biodiversity. You know, there's, again, so many reasons you could go down a thread about why this shark is valuable, right? Shark isn't per se, you know, being verified from a carbon standard. But if you remove sharks from an ecosystem, I'm just using one example here, it has this cascading effect where suddenly there's going to be likely an overpopulation of other fish that used to be chomped on by those sharks, which then throws off the whole ecosystems, which actually can cause ecosystems to then in turn collapse. So that's just by removing this one sort of core element on the food chain. If you think about, well, what if we come up with funding mechanisms to also protect sharks, all the positive benefits that can provide to the communities, to the economies, to the ecosystem. So let's think about also biodiversity and nature being protecting it and funding that in its own right. And in many cases, that can also be done synergistically or concurrently with being carbon negative. You Obviously, there's biodiversity benefits to planting trees along with all the sort of the carbon sequestration benefits. So it's really about this mentality of let's do more. We need to do more. We need to do more rapidly. If climate change was solved tomorrow, we're still experiencing mass species extinction and ecosystem collapse and dredging and deforestation and all of these other things. So the ultimate reality is that nature sustains us. Earth will be fine. It might take millions of years for it to keep spinning and evolution to do its course, but the ecosystems and the stable climate that have allowed human beings to make the jump from, you know, wandering tribes of hunter-gatherers to modern civilization, those are very connected. So that gets thrown out of whack. It's lives, it's prosperity, it's all these things. So let's fund uh, protection and restoration of nature as we also look to solve these pressing challenges when it comes to the climate crisis. You have me thinking that Besides your father, I mean, sounds like just a really interesting man in terms of what he devoted his work to. I'm interested in who your paradigm intellectual mentors have been, and it can be unrelated to coral reefs, obviously, because you're talking to some extent out of the, you know, the spirit of, you know, the Earth First movement to, you know, the spirit of Julia Butterfly, who's who's willing to commit herself to, you know, and the tribe the supporter in the Northern California Redwoods or the, you know, the Northwest Redwoods for over a year, where it becomes a visceral type of experience for you. But a lot of that is because of our ancestors who came before us, whether it's John Muir, or was it a philosophical strain? Or, yeah, I'm just because at some point you were able to put this framework together about how to actually understand myself in the world and potentially be in alignment. Most people do not, especially how you're navigating kind of this really interesting migration between the secular world of financing these projects, yet. You're also a philosopher at heart, Sam. I mean, you can cut and paste, I mean, a beautiful image of what's possible, what's being done, and you're looking at it in a very multidimensional way. So I'd like to better understand who came before you or who's currently on the planet that's really supporting you and understanding your current framework. Hmm. That is a question I don't often get asked. So, and, uh, you know, you kind of said when you referred to ancestors, I mean, I was lucky enough to know most of my grandparents and hear stories about my great grandparents and all but one of them were immigrants to the United States and just knowing how much family matters and things I don't know that I've inherited from them. Definitely 
plays some role. The framework, you know, I can't at all take any credit for any originality in what I feel I've described thus far. But at the root of it, I, I alluded to this earlier, but didn't name it. This principle that my mom and my dad raised my brother and I on as a Jewish philosophy known as tikkun olam, which roughly translates into repair of the world. And it's, you know, existed for centuries, if not millennia. And it's just this belief that we have a capacity to do good. Doesn't mean you have to do a lot. Doesn't mean you have to be a hero or a saint, because that's definitely not the case for me, but that you can make positive contributions. And why not? So that is definitely at the root of much of who I am. As I said before, you know, I didn't think I was going to be a coral farmer. I didn't think I was going to be an entrepreneur. I had more of a policy background and I got to intern at the White House doing climate adaptation policy work and work on behalf of island nation governments that are trying to form coalitions to protect nature and protect themselves and then worked for NGOs and nonprofits. So this is definitely, it was a varied path that got me here. But Tikkun Olam is definitely at the root of much of that. As, as far as one individual person, if I'm going to just name anyone more contemporary, I had a great professor in college and in grad school named John Gaddis, who is actually a Cold War historian. So my favorite thing to actually study and read about is military history. And I took his Cold War class in undergrad. I then was a teaching assistant while I was getting my master's degrees in that same class. And then there's a a course that was offered called Studies in Grand Strategy, which is basically the scope of world history and leadership and how you learn from all these leaders and lessons from the past that you can apply to contemporary challenges from coral reefs and climate change to peace in the Middle East, to education reform, to biosecurity, you name it. And my senior thesis was climate change as a national security threat, actually. So having someone who's incredibly serious and smart and has met a lot of very, very influential people and has a very deep understanding of history and how our actions shape the present. Being someone who is in my corner is great. It's actually his wife, Tony, also has has been a friend to me as well. You mentioned this idea of repair, that you can always do something to repair. You can devote yourself to repair in the world, you know, repair the heart, repair the earth, repair the soul. And there's obviously a linkage between those. But you said something that really stuck out for me. You're like, it really doesn't matter if you do a lot. It's more about whether you're actually just heading down that and trying to do something. And so obviously, to some extent, you probably are doing more than what most people would do. Uh, How do you know when enough is enough for you, both on a kind of a day-to-day basis, because it's kind of endless. Uh, You can probably just work as much as you want to work and be engaged as much as you want to be engaged. How do you answer that question in terms of, is it your body answering that question saying, you know, Sam's body is saying, hey, look, I mean, this is enough. Or what benchmarks, what practices are you using to discern or are you not? And just kind of just letting it ride wild and just running on a high RPM gauge. I don't know. A bit more of the latter. I think in my personality, I feel a fairly good balance as far as making sure that I take time to do whatever it is that is restorative personally, but also definitely don't have very good processes or practices when it comes to just making that habitual or or routines. I know this is the case for many people, even if you're not working in the world of entrepreneurship, but I just took my first vacation in, I don't know, three years this past month. So I was very overdue for that. And that was definitely good to to recharge the batteries. I've been lucky to get to travel to many places for work, but rarely is the sort of phone off or the computer down. So 
I do draw also, I think a lot of strength though, from the work as difficult as it can be from a business perspective, from a team perspective, from a science and technology and funding and all those things. But we're still dealing with a pretty incredible life form and the goal of keeping them alive for future generations and working with the communities themselves who are so reliant upon them. And that's one of the best parts of the job. So I I even can sort of repair the phrase that I'm feeling from at times, not certainly not always, but the, the work itself, but then also just getting on the water and getting into nature. I think that's the best tonic for myself. And I, I would imagine for most people, whether it's taking a hike or sitting in a field or scuba diving or snorkeling, whatever it might be, but nature is, is definitely a great place for me. Related, because I think you touched on part of it, is that and you're the type of person I would ask because after listening to you for the past, you know, 40 minutes and sharing this conversation together, I suspect that you've given some consideration to what the good life feels like, looks like. I mean, you probably understand yourself as a mortal being that only has a certain amount of time on earth. And curious on, in addition to what you just shared, what does that good life or an ideal life look like for you and feel like? I don't have a job in this space anymore. I don't have coral reefs that need to be repaired, which unfortunately we're not heading in that direction, but still believing that we can get to a place where the infrastructure enough exists that we can ensure that reefs continue surviving until we give them the space and time enough to thrive again. Being with my partner, Courtney, she's the best and she's an amazing person to be sharing my life with, along with our dog, our Bahamian pot cake, as they call the mutts here, Panda. So Courtney Pan and I, you know, we got a pretty nice team and having a good life where there's a as happy of a family as possible that are ideally getting to learn about things that matter in the world and go on adventures, be with friends, listen to good music, be safe and secure, but also not compromising on being able to really tap into the the wonders that exist in the world for the sake of just, I guess, being or doing the normal thing. So yeah, I don't plan to live in the Bahamas forever. I don't plan to move from coral farm to coral farm. But in the meantime, getting to continue experiencing reefs and working together with not just our team at Coral Vita, but our partners and other amazing scientists and community leaders and practitioners and policymakers and financiers and really just collaborating to have the world be a better place. That's what the good life looks like to me. We've shared a lot and I've learned a lot. But also know that in a conversation like this that touches on a lot of different dimensions, I inevitably miss something that you may have been processing while either I'm talking or you were sharing and realized that maybe it didn't fit in here. So I want to give you the last opportunity to share something that emerged for you during our conversation that really hasn't been spoken to or hasn't been elaborated as well or enough of. We actually did touch on this a bit, but I would just say again, finding ways to connect with nature. You don't need to go hug trees. You don't need to be scuba certified. You don't need to climb to the tallest peak. But you alluded to a while back in the early parts of the conversation, how we likely evolved from life in the sea. Well, obviously, at some point we did. But where that connection exists, and and I really do feel in particular, water has this really profound ability on a personal level to just give us that sense of comfort and hopefully wonder and relaxation, but also maybe even a drive to protect it because without water, we don't exist without clean water. And I've always felt that 
there's an element of society where with all the conveniences, which I absolutely enjoy and benefit from, that come with just say modern plumbing and sanitation, we as a society have moved further and further and further away physically, mentally, spiritually from clean water because it used to be we had to settle, we had to live by, we had to find clean sources of water. And there are obviously still people around the world that do. But by and large, in terms of modern society, you sort of lose that connection. And I feel it becomes easier for us or it becomes more distant to connect with what really matters in terms of keeping a planet and the ecosystems healthy, because ultimately, again, those things sustain us and take care of us along with incredible biodiversity. So having that ability to connect with nature, recognizing not just how cool and wonderful it is, but then also, wow, this is really something we should be taking care of because it takes care of us is, I think, fairly profound. It's often easier to do than a lot of people give it credit for. And for those it's not easy for, I hope that you know our leaders step up and again, not only protect nature, but make nature more accessible for those that need access to it because it really is inspiring and incredible and fucking cool. <laughs> for sure. Sam, where can people learn more about the work you're doing? And for the most part, I mean, where can they learn more about Sam and, and also the work you're doing? So on social media, across Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, it's at Coral Vita Reefs. Our website is www.coralvita.co, not .com. That is an Eastern European cosmetics manufacturer, which is a story I'd love to hear how that happens. So coralvita.co. There's plenty of stuff about us online. We've got an incredible team. You may be able to tune in to see the upcoming Earthshot Prize series, which is this prize created by Prince William that we actually very honored to have won last year. And we'll think there'll be some features of our work in this season's ocean episodes. And then finally, you can also come on down to the Bahamas, hopefully, and, and check out the farm and plant corals with us in person and see what the reefs are like, see how we can all make a difference together and get to work and have some fun while doing it. Wow, this is so inspiring. Thanks, Sam, for joining me and us. You know, here in the near future, it will be us in terms of others will be able to join you in this conversation as well. But I really feel inspired and very moved and very touched to be reminded that, I mean, there's souls like you doing the work out there and are being mindful about it and also materializing passion in it in a way that works toward alignment. You put a big emphasis on on nature and couldn't agree with you more. You know, this episode is more about your story than mine, but obviously nature for me has played an indelible part in, in my wellness as well and my ability to feel centered and productive in the world. Appreciate those words. Love the sentiment. And thanks for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure and great time talking with you. I hope it's been great for everyone listening and looking forward to seeing you on the reefs. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.